it seems as if we're just getting used to the routine and getting used to each other and getting used to the meditation and it's already finished and now we have to get back to what we several people have called during this course the real life <laughs> well whether it's real over there or real in here it's certainly different compared to what is going on here it's hectic out there and that would be the first thing you'll notice when you get out there after having been here very sheltered for seven days you get out there and it's very likely that you might think what's everybody rushing for where's everybody going why the hurry and uh, the question is quite valid people are just going and they seem to have a great um, uh, sense of urgency about this going as if there was anywhere to go this uh, planet of ours is round and uh, so we're going around in circles and samsara the wheel of birth and death is also in the wheel shape so that's also there's nowhere to go we're always going around but this particular um, aspect that you will notice the rushing and uh, that there's so much hurry everywhere after just a little while it will all seem totally normal to you again and gets used to it and uh, in fact you can't even remember just vaguely maybe that it was otherwise and when you vaguely remember that it was otherwise being in a course then of course the mind says maybe I should go to another course and that's quite so but that also is not the total answer to step in and out of real life into unreal life and then from unreal back to real I mean that's not the answer is it the answer is to find one's footing in that um, ordinary everyday existence without being um, drawn into the ordinary way of acting and reacting in other words to keep one's mindfulness going to keep one's attention going and constantly checking one of the things that we need to check is and it is to do with clear comprehension that I explained last night is what I'm doing is it really important useful uh, purposeful or could I just drop it is it only habit and many things we do out of habit and they might have been purposeful some time ago and no longer are or maybe they're not even they've never been purposeful they were only being done because this was the way 
our family was doing it or our friends were doing it. That too happens. And without examining that, we might keep on using our time like that. So this is one aspect that we're going to have to make the meditative stance that we have practiced here come to life in everyday existence because we cannot split ourselves in half. Naturally, it's very good to take retreats and um, take time out to do more intensive practice. But other than that, the um, lifestyle and the meditative attention that we pay to whatever we're doing has to remain the same wherever we are. So many of the things that we can practice in everyday life I've already mentioned and I'll just recapitulate first of all and at the top of the list is always mindfulness paying attention to oneself not because one wants to indulge oneself not because one wants to blame oneself but just because one wants to guard oneself against unwholesomeness. Now this guarding against unwholesomeness is our only insurance we can ever get. Insurance companies and insurance policies notwithstanding, nothing works except that. That is the only thing we can do for ourselves to protect ourselves. That is our protection, because our mindfulness coupled with clear comprehension will show us when we are losing the meditative attention, getting caught up in the um, way that the world considers it it's necessary to act, and also when we get caught up in our impulsive reactions which invariably lead us to some unhappiness, invariably lead us to some um, excitement. Whichever way it goes, the impulsiveness of the reaction does not give us peacefulness. When that is happening, we can no longer be mindful. So it's a vicious circle that we find ourselves in. Once we start losing our attention, it gets worse and worse because we cannot find our way back until we've completely calmed down again and start all over again. Now, we may have to do that many times. That's quite all right. But we must become aware that this is what we're doing, that we're losing mindfulness when we are no longer protecting ourselves against unwholesomeness. And unhappiness is unwholesomeness. We are often um, tempted to think that unhappiness is um, sensitivity, that unhappiness is uh, an expression that uh, goes along with uh, our emotional life. It doesn't have to. Unhappiness is always caused by one of two things. 
not getting what one wants or getting what one doesn't want. It's as simple as that. And if we can check out what's happening in our life against that, we'll find it's always true, invariably. So unhappiness and unwholesomeness are uh, completely connected because it is due to craving, wanting or not wanting. So mindfulness is always at the top of the list, coupled with clear comprehension. And our practice is, in daily life, the practice of the four supreme emotions. Rather than allowing ourselves any kind of emotion, which uh, will buffet us like a storm at sea, here and there, we try to practice again and again those emotions which are not only warming, but also uh, peace-producing, harmonizing, and gentling our whole um, being. It is as if we are doing a very intensive house cleaning, where once the place has been swept clean, we watch out very carefully that nothing gets out of order again within ourselves. Mindfulness and clear comprehension plus the four supreme emotions are so are such an often important uh, they're so important in our spiritual practice that it is the one thing that we must never forget that spiritual practice does not happen just on the pillow. In fact, that belief is unfortunately fairly widespread. And if one has that kind of attitude, spiritual practice is not happening. We cannot make two out of our mind. We have to keep it in one. The four supreme emotions are also coupled with the four supreme efforts, which means not allowing the unwholesome thoughts to come or to continue. So it is the emotion and the thought and the mindfulness that is the guardian, the protector. Now, when we have that going for us, very little can go wrong. Life becomes smooth, easy, and the feeling within is a feeling of a harmonious even-mindedness. It loses its um, highs and lows. Now, some people will say, and they're perfectly justified in saying so if they wish, that they'd rather have their lows if they, because they'd also want their highs. They don't want to give up the highs. That's fine. One has to come to the point where eventually that becomes uh, somewhat disturbing because every high is followed by a low. There's no other way it can work. What goes up has to come down. So eventually, as one has tried
tried this out long enough, one realizes there is no other choice if one really wants to have the uh, peacefulness in the heart and the harmony in one's life that one tries to stay in the middle, a middle path. Keeping the precepts. Sounds very easy, actually, but isn't. It's a training. Now again, only mindfulness will be able to tell us when we're not keeping them. Because that might not be such an um, earth-shaking uh, event when we, uh, event when we uh, break them. It may be something very minor, and yet it's breaking a precept. Buddha includes in, for instance, in lying, exaggerating or underrating. Well, that too is wrong speech. Well, these are not uh, very uh, uh, tremendous happenings, but they are also something that we can put our attention on. So mindfulness watches out that the precepts are being kept and that we practice their opposites. Now, if that isn't enough for one's daily life, I don't know what is. <laughs> There's plenty to do. <laughs> So we have a full-time program for every day. Now, having this kind of full-time program is uh, very beneficial because one doesn't have to start thinking, now, how am I going, what am I going to do? How can I going to uh, get something going that's interesting? Or uh, what will I do with myself? The program's already there. And it applies to every situation. It doesn't matter what one does. The only thing that matters is how one does it. It's absolutely no difference whether we are sweeping a floor or cleaning a toilet or writing a book or trying to write a master's thesis or whatever it may be. It has absolutely no bearing on the matter. It's how we do it. And when that comes into our uh, life as a matter of course, then we're practicing a spiritual path. In the beginning, it will be a constant effort to remember. Uh, some of my students, they make a little sign and they write on it what they want to remember. And then they stick it on their dashboard because they use a car a lot or they stick it behind the mirror or something. It's very helpful. Like people have signs on their doors, please take your shoes off. Okay, make signs. It's, uh, if one really means it, one has to remember. In order to practice anything, one has to first know it, then one has to remember it, then after having remembered, remembered it, then one has to see how one can actualize it in oneself, and after having done that, one can recapitulate how it has worked for oneself. There's no other way of doing it. It's um, very often, because we are thinking creatures, the, uh, the knowing is uh, already considered enough. We know it, so let's get on with the next point. But that doesn't do anything for us. So if the memory doesn't serve one very well, 
and um, one has to keep so many things in one's head. It doesn't matter if the memory doesn't serve one so, one so well. Well, write it down. Another thing that some people find useful, some don't, but some find it useful, is to have a sort of a bookkeeping. A bookkeeping at the end of the day, like uh, making a debit and credit column, like a, a shopkeeper, for instance, having on the debit on the debit side all the negativities that one has oneself uh, exuded during that day, like having been unkind, having not been helpful, not not having. Uh, uh, paid attention to somebody else's wishes, whatever it may be, whatever comes to mind. And then write down on the credit side all the nice things one has done in the day. And seeing it on black and white is very helpful to realize that that stuff on the debit side doesn't have to be repeated. Like any shopkeeper, if he sees that some merchandise doesn't move, he's not going to reorder it. <laughs> Well, that's definitely merchandise that doesn't move. <laughs> but the stuff that's very uh, uh, profitable, that stuff on the credit side, that one can have more of that. And in the beginning of one's practice, such, such a thing, uh, writing it down, can be enormously uh, revealing. It can be a revealing of one's own um, feelings during just one day. One won't even remember everything. It doesn't matter. But uh, this uh, revelation of seeing that it will help one again to be more mindful, to be more attentive. It's really a matter of paying attention, becoming wide open to what's happening to with oneself, within oneself. So some people who are inclined to, to be bookkeepers and write things down find that good. Other people don't like to write things down and they just have to do it in their head. Other than that kind of practice, of course, meditation has to be also done. It's not that meditation can be left aside. It must just not be confused as being the only thing. Meditation is the training of the mind so that the mind can be mindful and can practice the four supreme emotions and can practice the four supreme efforts. And uh, that is uh, done, that training, in the meditation. So it is very helpful if one has uh, every day the same time for the meditation. Now whether that's at 5 o'clock in the morning or at 8 o'clock in the morning makes no difference just so that it's the same time. And again, the same time in the evening. Because the mind is uh, very habitually inclined. When we have a certain um, habit in our daily lives also, we get up at a certain time, we eat at certain times. In fact, some people find that at a certain time in the day, their stomach starts growling because they're used to eating at that time. Uh, so the... Uh, the mind has that same thing. If it goes every day at five o'clock in the morning to sit down and meditate, it will become so used to it that it, the mind can't sleep any longer. It just is awake. 
And, uh, but that, whatever time it is, one has to find out for one for one's own daily activities. And then have a place in your house. It only need to be a corner. It doesn't have to be a whole room or anything, just a corner, big enough to have a mat and a pillow. And in that place you can have a vase of flowers or a, a picture or a Buddha statue if you're so inclined or nothing. It doesn't matter. But leave the pillow and the mat lying there. We don't remove our dining room chairs every day. We don't remove our towels from the bathroom every day. We don't take the saucepan out of the kitchen. If we go to the room where we want to do something, the stuff we need is there. So when we get to this meditation place at 5 o'clock in the morning, we don't have to run around the house trying to find the pillow. It's there, and we can sit down on it. And that is the meditation corner. And uh, then the same in the evening. If the evening is not suitable because the day is too hectic, then one needs to use more time in the morning. Have a timer, an alarm clock or a timer, and set it for the time that you want to meditate. And wait for it to ring. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you don't have that, and you sit there and you're meditating, 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 and after some time, the mind thinks, oh, must be an hour and a half at least. <laughs> so you get up and go to the kitchen, and what is it? Ten minutes. <laughs> and then, of course, you make breakfast and don't go back to the meditation. But if you put a timer on, you know it hasn't rung yet, and that's it, and you sit with it. Now, for beginners who haven't done much meditation at all you can start with 30 minutes and work up not down <laughs> five minutes more every week or every two weeks until it gets to be an hour those that have meditation practice for years on end an hour in the morning an hour at night is minimum it's the absolute minimum to keep the meditation at the level that one has already got it to. It will not improve it. Two hours a day is the minimum to keep one's level, and two hours a day every day. Now, we eat every day, three times a day. We go to sleep every day. We wash ourselves every day. We clean our teeth every day. We uh, do so many things that are necessary for the body every single day. And if somebody came along and said, well, um, I just eat when I feel like it. I don't eat every day. Once in a while I eat something. We think that's crazy. Or uh, I only wash myself when I feel like it. I don't wash every day or once in a while. It's uh, impossible. But how many people write on their little paper, well, once in a while, I meditate, or irregular. And yet, that is the most important um, care that we can give ourselves. The mind is in charge of everything. This body is a minor aspect that is constantly giving us problems, so we look after it the best way we can. But if the mind is in order, and anyone who's ever got uh, concentrated for even five minutes knows 
that if the mind is concentrated and it's perfectly in order, the body doesn't exist. Uninteresting. It's just sitting here. It's just sort of like a vessel to, to keep the mind here. That's all. So, every day. And um, just as a, as a uh, you can call it almost like a, for your own, for hygiene, to meditate every day. For those who have practiced a long time, two hours a day is the minimum to keep it going for at the point where you got to. For those who have just started, it, uh, it is all right to start with 30 minutes and work up, come to an hour eventually. It is a matter of disciplining oneself, but it's also a matter of organizing one's day properly. And I'm sure one can find some things which one doesn't have to do and to drop them and do this instead, the meditation. Out of 24 hours a day, if we sleep seven, then we are, we are left with 17 hours a day. Out of those, I'm sure we can find two to meditate. If you can imagine how much time one takes to prepare, purchase the food. No, first make the money to purchase the food, then purchase the food, bring it home, Stack it away, then prepare it to eat, eat it, clean up after it. Hours and hours and hours. I'm not saying that shouldn't be done, actually it has to be done, right? Nobody is foolish enough to think that one can learn without it. But within all that, that's survival, which as I've said before, is a foregone conclusion that it won't work. Nobody is going to survive. But Meditation is growth. It's a growing aspect. So it is really a thing we need to consider as very important. If the other people in your family or in your household also meditate, very nice. You've got companionship. Very helpful. Support system of other people is very important. Uh, the support system in a group such as this is also very helpful. If they don't meditate, the people in your household, and are at least uh, supportive and not uh, antagonistic, that's okay too. If they have any kind of rejection of your practice, more and more loving kindness is the only remedy. <laughs> It doesn't help to explain anything. In fact, it makes it worse. If they feel after some time that, the, that you yourself have changed because of the meditation, they might even come and ask what's going on. That has been known to happen because all of a sudden they become curious. What is this? So there is no other remedy except more and more loving-kindness. Now, when you come home now, there might be people at home that have either meditated or not ever meditated. In any case, they're going to be very curious what you've been doing here. They would be uh, not normal if they weren't. If they aren't, of course, that would be already a rejection, but normally they would ask you questions and say, well, what you've been doing, what's been going on, how does that work, and all the rest of it. Well, tell them whatever it is that you like to tell them. 
as long as you feel there is the receptivity. But when you come to the point where you might say, and then I didn't have any awareness of my body, and you see that the eyes are looking sort of at you a little bit, you know, questioningly, the time to stop. Don't stretch their credulity. Um, and don't make it out to be something extraordinary. Tell the most ordinary aspects of, of meditation, that it is looking after the mind, that it's mental hygiene, that it's trying to uh, not be so discursive, to have more loving, all that sounds perfectly normal to most people. And also when you come home and there are people who might be there awaiting you, and you walk in there and you think that these people have changed a lot since you've been away. You can be quite sure that it's you who have changed, not them. They are doing exactly the same things they've been doing all the time. And you've been doing something else. So more loving kindness and more patience is required. Now all that change and all the difference that one feels in oneself has a tendency to dissipate rather quickly. And uh, as one finds it dissipating, then one starts thinking, uh, maybe I should become a monk or a nun, or, uh, uh, or maybe I should just live in a, in a community where they only meditate all day, or maybe I should quickly go to another course. Well, maybe, I don't know, but that's also not the answer. It's the answer is again and again to stand back and take time, not get caught up in the hustle bustle of thinking and acting, which is a normal uh, response that one has in the world, just to keep standing back. Now, where one lives, does make a lot of difference. In the Great Blessing Sutta, the Mahamangala Sutta, the Buddha mentions 38 blessings, and one of them is a congenial place to live, where there is no strife, where there are no thieves, no robbers, where there is uh, nature, where there, are, where there is some peacefulness. Obviously not everybody can have that. That's quite so. Some people have to live in the city for some reasons. But one needs to remember that one's own place, where one is, to make it as peaceful as possible. Not to have the, um, all the modern equipment that shatters peace uh, running, uh, uh, running all the time. You know, television sets, radios, uh, tape recorders, uh, uh, tape decks, uh, uh, telephones, telephone answering machines, and all the rest of it. Um, to make life more peaceful outside of oneself helps. It doesn't have a guarantee, but it helps to be able to stand back a bit. Now, if one has this congenial place to live, 
one has one of the great blessings. And another great blessing is to have the right kind of friends. Another one of the blessings is not with fools associating, with the wise ever consorting. Now a fool in Pali is Bala, and Bala also means child. So it is not a person who is necessarily stupid, but it is a person that has no interest in the mental and spiritual growth aspect. That is what is meant by the fool. Now with wise people associating, to associate with those who also want to practice. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Don't ever think that the method matters. Some people think that. It is not uh, uh, not useful to think in that way. What matters is that people want to grow and want to practice that growth. And if we have those kinds of friends, and especially if we find wise ones, those that can give some help on our path, then we have a great blessing. Friends and associates are the antidote, the common antidote for all of the five hindrances. All of the five hindrances each have their separate antidotes, but they all have one antidote in common, and that is noble friends and noble conversation. Obviously that happens in daily life. That has nothing to do with meditation courses, because this one in a meditation course one isn't supposed to have conversations, noble or otherwise. So this is for our daily living, to have noble friends and noble conversations. Conversations you can consider like um, food for the mind. And as I've said once, health food for the mind is even more important than health food for the body. So the kind of conversations that go on are often not health food. It is up to the person who is a practitioner to often take a hand in this and change the direction of the conversation. It needs a little bit of skill, but it isn't difficult. Because people are so discursive in their thinking, they don't even notice it when they've changed the direction. They might have been talking about something which is not useful to talk about and one can change the direction and if they do notice it it doesn't matter because it's done out of a, um, a wholesome intention in order to bring the other people and oneself into a, a healthier environment of conversation so that too has to be checked out when we converse whether it is right speech Noble friends are a very important factor of one's own life and one's, certainly one's spiritual path. And those people who do meditate and go to meditation courses usually find that they make friends with others that do the same thing. Because um, birds of a feather flock together. If one has the same kind of interest, one likes to be together. This is important. 
one has to be also there one has to be watchful that the people that one associates with often are the kind of people that are helpful to one to keep the practice going if we have those people around us it's so much easier and what is even more important if it's possible is to find someone who's already a few steps ahead and can keep saying well you know what you're doing right now don't think it's so important it will all change or don't uh, hang on to this or whatever it may be necessary a kalyana mitta a kalyana mitta is a spiritual friend if you have them that's wonderful if you haven't i'm sure you can find them and another thing which is very helpful is to go once a week to a group uh, sitting wherever that may be and if you happen to live somewhere where there isn't one you start one two are a group so if there are if you live in San Francisco or in Berkeley I'm sure there there are group sittings uh, available more than you need probably so you pick one which is not too far away from your home and diligently visit there and go there every week it is very nice if you can find a group sitting or a group that sits but also discusses the buddha's teachings it is too often forgotten that sitting is sitting but tanachancha once said a chicken sits three weeks all mm-hmm. without getting up and what does it get small chicken <laughs> so sitting is sitting is very good but it needs to be bolstered by some understanding and knowing so if there is a group anywhere which i don't know because i'm only a occasional visitor to these parts uh where there is also some of the buddha's teaching available either to be read and discussed or to be um, given in a, in a discourse that's very helpful and if you have your own friends that uh, are interested in that make your own group the only thing to guard against of viewpoints when we first start saying well maybe he meant this or maybe he meant something else the only thing to guard against is that that the argumentation about viewpoints about the buddha's teaching is to take it as it comes straight if there isn't such a thing possible one may need to do that on one's own that takes a fair bit of discipline there one has to have a um, motivation for that a motivation which in most cases people don't have but some do friends and associates are so important that the buddha not only mentioned it as one of the blessings as the antidote for all five hindrances but he gave a whole discourse on it 
what kind of friends one should have. And he mentioned all the kinds that one shouldn't have. And one lot is called the fair weather friends, the ones that only stick around while one is uh, doing all right. If there's any kind of misery or tragedy, they disappear. Those kind of friends are not the uh, noble friends. They are only around when everything is fine. And one shouldn't have the kind of friends that induce one to go carousing and dancing and drinking. All that is mentioned by the Buddha. The whole discourse is on the um, uh, kind of associates that one should have, those that protect one's belongings, that one can trust with one's belongings, those that one can trust with one's life. In order to have such friends, one has to be such a friend. That too is a very important practice. I think there's so much to practice that uh, maybe a whole day is not even enough. Huh? So we have to maybe divide it up. One day we'll practice this and the next day that. But it is quite clear that the people that we are with and that uh, constitute a great part of our daily living are very important. And uh, that those are, along, are also traveling along the same journey that we are, that is a very important thing also. Because if they're going in a different direction, there will be constant friction. They will be telling us, well, you're going the wrong way. What are you doing? You'll never get where, you're, where you want to go. You have to come my way. And that kind of argumentation. So we really need people that um, are supportive and practicing themselves. If within the family that is not the case, that is an unfortunate uh, situation that can't be helped and can only be bridged by more and more patience and understanding. Although friends are very important, the whole thing hinges on one's own practice. Everything that is a problem today need not be a problem tomorrow. It all hinges on the diligence and the results of one's own practice. Mm -hmm. The practice has almost an automatic, I would say, progressive um, flow, which we can't even interrupt, only through stopping to practice. <coughs> and practice, again, means both sitting and in daily life. The Buddha called practice Pariyati and Patipati. Pariyati is study and Patipati is the actual sitting. So they are always considered by him to be uh, complementary to each other. So that when the experiences come, we do know what they are. And also when our own emotions come, when our own reactions come, we also know what they are so that we can deal with them.
Now is the last chance to ask questions. I am planning to come back in May of 1990, which sounds as if it was so long away, <laughs> but it's about, it's just, uh, well, it's not even two years, it's a year and three quarters. <laughs> I need to take a year off from this very uh, extensive traveling, which is quite uh, strenuous at sometimes because of also of the weather changes. And uh, so, this is the, the this is the moment now for the last question. All right. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's inevitable. Whether it's um, a, a slow progression or fast, that has something to do with one's karma. But it's inevitable. Can't, can't, uh, can't avoid it. If one knows what one's doing. I mean, just sitting on the pillow and dreaming won't do anything. Well, avoiding is also useful um, if there is absolutely no improvement in the resentment. If the resentment remains static, it's better to avoid and try to work on the resentment without having the person in front of one. But if the resentment is improving while the person is around, then one can infer from that that it will continue to improve. And then it's all right to have that person around. Because if it has already improved, it will improve more. But if it just remains the same, it's better to give it a break for a while, just to have a bit of a rest from it and see if it can be done. Yes.
Well, try, yes. Giving a gift, you could try. It may not work either. It depends how grouchy he is. <laughs> I mean, he may be such a grouch that he can't get him out of it. Did he used to be nice before? But why would he want to cut off your water? Uh, Just to be nasty? Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know. I've tried to talk to him about it. Mm. He said, well, the water flows under where he's living. Of course, it flows under where he's living. In the, underneath the ground is a spring. Mm. And it flows into my water system. Oh, I see. He was trying to dig down to find where the water was and block it so that he could use it. Oh. Well, bake him a cake. <laughs> and try that. See if it works. <laughs> it may or may not. Well, constantly to extend loving kindness to the person and... Uh, Try to, even in when you're very concentrated in the meditation, try to let him feel your uh, compassion for him. That type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing to do. Yeah, sure. Keep, keep him from acting crazy. Well, yeah. well exactly. Of course, that's what it's all about. We're not trying to uh, make the whole world happy. If that happens, that's wonderful, but it won't. We're trying to get ourselves purified. And whoever benefits from that may be near us, that's great. Yeah, your teacher. <laughs> your teacher for loving kindness. <laughs> Certainly. I feel particularly dense. Can you tell me how? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's um, if you have a, let's say you have a decision to make whether you're going to live here or in New York. Okay? Well, that's a major decision, isn't it? All right. Well, what you can do, you can sit down and just Uh, think about what is the benefits to yourself and others 
of living here or there. And then see whether anything comes up which shows you clearly where it's better to be. Usually, what really happens in life is not like that at all. What really happens is that a, a, uh, how can I say, a conglomeration of circumstances arise. And these circumstances then show that there is a choice. And usually that choice is also quite clear if one can see where the benefits lie. It isn't usually that, am I going to do this or that? Because one is usually doing something already. But then some put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And a golden stream of light comes out of the center of the lotus flower. And it fills you with warmth and light and love. And it surrounds you with a feeling of well-being. Now reach out to everyone here. Let the golden stream of light from your heart go to everyone's heart here. Fill everyone with warmth and light and love. And surround everyone with your care and concern, your friendship. Think of all those people who are near and dear to you, whom you might be seeing soon. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with warmth and light and love, and embracing them with your care, your concern, your friendship so that they may have a sense of well-being.
think of all your friends. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them. Fill them with that warmth and light that comes from your heart, giving them your love and your friendship. Think of your neighbors, people at work, people on your street, in the shops you frequent. Mailmen, salesmen, conductors, people you see here and there. Let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all of them filling them with your love, surrounding them with your friendship and your care. Let them enter your heart, be part of your life, which they are. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love. Be grateful for that person teaching you about unconditional love. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart be unobstructed and reach out to that person also. filling him or her with light and warmth and love, giving that person your friendship, your care and concern. Now open your heart as wide as you can and let that golden stream of light reach out as far and as wide as possible like a golden cloud of love and care going to as many living beings as you can reach further and further including all of them so that they can enter into your heart. 
Let them feel the warmth and the light and the love that comes from your heart. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel the peace that comes from loving, the contentment that comes from right effort, the feeling of inner harmony that arises from giving. Let this harmony, contentment and peace fill you and surround you, leaving no room for anything else. We share the merits of this meditation retreat with all our teachers, with our parents, with our loved ones, with our friends and our enemies. We share with Isha, who was instrumental in making it possible, with Barbara, who helped and with Judy and Sue, who kept us beautifully alive. We share with the people of St. Mary Immaculate's convent who allowed us to be here. We share with all the devas who may be present. We share with each other who have supported each other in this retreat and we share with all beings who may have benefit from these merits. May all beings be happy. I now officially terminate this meditation retreat and may you all be very happy.
there are ten particular ways of making good karma. And two of those are listening to Dhamma and teaching the Dhamma. So I like to thank you very much for giving me the opportunity of making good karma through teaching the Dhamma because if you hadn't been here, I wouldn't have that opportunity. All these strange things her mother had already done in this life, she doesn't approve at all. She's the straight and I'm the one that goes off, you know, on tangents. <laughs> but uh, then becoming a nun, that was too much. And uh, I mean, she didn't mind me being Buddhist. That's okay, you know. Um, she's quite a devout uh, Christian and uh, actually tries to, in her life, uh, actualize some of the teachings of Jesus. And uh, so we have a good uh, rapport on that level because um, we can discuss those things on where we really, it's actually the same thing that we're thinking about. So when she asked me, she <laughs> after I'd become a nun about 10 years ago, she said to me, why did you have to become a nun? It's all right to be a Buddhist, but to become a nun? <laughs> and I said, well, um, how, do you, how do you feel when you go to church on Sunday? Uh, how do you feel when you're in church? And she said, oh, I feel great. I really feel wonderful in there. It's peaceful, and it's, uh, I don't worry about anything. And I really like to hear the, the uh, music, the organ, and I feel very good. And I said, see? I want to feel like that every day, not just on Sunday. No further questions from her side. <laughs> she never asked me again. <laughs> that was the, the answer, so maybe that is an answer. <laughs> yes. Yes, people often ask me that. It goes back such a long time, I've forgotten a lot of it. But, um, well, I was backpacking through India <laughs> long before anybody else, <laughs> um, time-wise, I mean, and in the six, early 60s. And I got to the Sri Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry, which is in the south of India. And uh, Sri Aurobindo himself was dead at that time. This was 1963. Oh, it starts earlier than that, actually. Well, anyway, okay. <laughs> and, uh, but the mother was alive. And the mother was sort of his spiritual partner. And she was also a, a teacher, a spiritual teacher. Uh, for, my, for myself, I could never understand anything Sri Aurobindo wrote. It was much too um, philosophical for me. And, uh, I mean, the he has actually been able to commit the longest sentence in the English language on paper. <laughs> it's one whole page in his epic Savitri. I, mean, I have never read the thing. I can't understand this. This is just too uh, uh, great for me to understand. But she, the mother, she was teaching on a very uh, down-to-earth level, a very nice. And uh, so we uh, stayed there in this ashram, 
and uh, she was teaching meditation. Uh, everybody was sitting on a huge, um, uh, like a playground out under the stars, and her voice came over the loudspeaker, and she was saying what to do. And I, I went there, and I thought, well, that's very nice. So I sat down and did it, and uh, I thought it was great. So then I went to inquire from the man who was sort of in charge of things there whether I'd been doing this correctly. And so he sent me up to the mother to discuss it with her, and I discussed it, and so she gave me some advice. And it was in 63. Before that, I must say, in 59, I started with um, SRF, Surfalization Fellowship. I was living in Tecate, and the headquarters were in uh, in. Sanitas, isn't it? Or Ensenada. I'm always getting mixed up with the two. The one in America is Ensenitas, is it? Yeah. And Ensenitas, which is just across the border from Tecate. And uh, a beautiful place. Uh, big temple and beautiful grounds. And they send out like a, um, uh, what do you call it, a sort of a, a weekly lessons uh, and uh, how to improve yourself you know, how to not get angry and stuff like that. And that was very nice, very helpful. But then I started traveling, so I had to give it up. I didn't get very far in it, but it was nice. And uh, that is the Yogananda's thing, as a Self-Realization Fellowship. You know, the book, um, uh, what's this book? Autobiography of a Yogi. He started this SRF. He wasn't alive anymore either. In the beginning of my practice, I always thought, well, wherever I go, the teacher is dead. <laughs> I must find a life one eventually. <laughs> so after this SRF, the next thing was then uh, the mother. And then I went to stay at the um, Ramana Ashramam, which is the ashram of, Shira, uh, of Ramana Maharshi in Tiruvannamalai which is just a little bit south of Aurobindo's uh, ashram, about 100 miles or 80, 80 miles south in Tamil Nadu in the south of India. And of course he was dead too. Um, <laughs> but his greatest uh, Western disciple was there, uh, Paul, uh, what can I say? Uh, not Paul, what's his name? Hmm? No, I forgot his name. He's dead too now, but <laughs> at, he was, at least he was alive then. Anyway, he was, uh, I can't think, he wrote the, he uh, put the books about Ramana Maharshi together. Ramana Maharshi ma never wrote a book, but this man, uh, he put, hmm? No. An uh, Englishman. Uh, nah. <laughs> it's so long ago. Anyway, he, uh, he was there. And so he gave some ideas about Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is the teaching in Hinduism, which is non-duality Vedanta. And the non-duality Vedanta is the closest to Buddhism that one can find. <clears throat> and Ramana Maharshi's understanding was certainly now, in retrospect, the same understanding of the Buddha, but couched in different terms. This is all in retrospect. At the time, I started um, reading those books, which are very nice and very easily understood, but they don't give exact instructions what to do. And my reaction was always, when I read this stuff, this is great for Ramana Maharshi, but how am I going to do it? I just couldn't find the proper instructions in it. 
Um, I certainly did the meditation. It was also on the breath that the mother, mother taught. So that was no, that was all right. And um, then I was in India for uh, a while, about a year, and then in Australia. And I kept this going. I, in Australia, of course, I was a householder. I had uh, children and a 200-acre farm, so fairly busy. And uh, I did meditation, but I'm not sure whether any progress was made or not. I can't say. But certainly there came, some teachers came to Australia then. There was one man that came from India. He was an Australian. And uh, he came from the, um, in Rishikesh, what's that ashram in Rishikesh? Uh, Shivananda ashram. And he was a good teacher, and he came. And uh, and then <coughs> this went on, and I started, kept on studying this the teaching of Ramana Maharshi. And then in 1973, a Buddhist monk appeared. And, of course, nobody had ever seen a Buddhist Theravadan monk before. Uh, maybe seen them, but didn't know what they were teaching. So my friends wrote from their farm and said that this Buddhist monk is coming, and uh, or they said this Zen monk is coming, and he's going to teach something. Would I like to come? And I said, yes, uh, I'll come. I mean, I didn't know the difference between a Zen monk and a Theravadan monk or anything. I hadn't had any contact with Buddhism at all in those uh, ten years where I'd been practicing meditation but only studying Hinduism. So he happened to be an Englishman who now runs my monastery in Australia. And uh, he was an Englishman and he was a Theravadan monk. It's my tradition. And the minute he sat, he sat down and he did nothing else except explain the five precepts. I mean, nothing could be simpler. Except, I mean, what I explained yesterday, much simpler than what I said yesterday. He just told them and that one should keep them. I thought, that's it. That's what I've been waiting for. Somebody to tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I mean, I knew there was something great going on, but I didn't know how to do it. And it was just the five precepts. Although, I mean, as children, we already heard the Ten Commandments. And uh, we heard them over and over again. I mean, I, I can even remember them. But they never made uh, some impact. This thing made impact. I knew that. And uh, then from that, and that was a meditation course, just something like this. But the man had been a monk for, I don't know, 10, 12 years in, in Thailand. And uh, in Thailand, this business about the monks never being, uh, you know, sort of confronted with women is very strong. And he had a dreadful time because, of course, there were men and women in the course. So I had to act as his interpreter sort of thing, you know, not, not because he couldn't speak English, but because he didn't want to talk to the women. And so I had to relay the messages for him. Anyway, I invited him and then to the farm, and he came and built a kuti for him. He stayed there, and I started studying Buddhism. And then that kept going like that. I Then some teachers came to Australia. Uh, two lamas came, Lama Jeshi and Lama Zopa. And of course, Australia is sort of at the end of the world, if you forget that the world is round. And finally, these two lamas appeared. And uh, I thought, well, I must get to know that, you know, two real lamas from Tibet. That was in, also in 1973. 
I had never, I'd never seen a llama before, naturally. I mean, now they're old hat, you can find them everywhere, but in those days you'd never <laughs> seen one before. And uh, so I went there, there was a month's course. It wasn't for me. Um, I mean, it's a matter of inclination. I'm not inclined that way. I just, I need it straightforward and down to earth. I, I can't do anything with that. So, uh, and in those days, those, uh, they were still teaching as if they were teaching Tibetans. They, had, they hadn't changed over to teaching Westerners yet. They didn't know that we were quite different. So it was really uh, not suitable. But anyway, I sat through it for a month. It was about the best thing I could do there, sit through it. And it was visualization meditation, which I find very simple, uh, very easy. I, I don't have any difficulty with that. And uh, so we did that. That was taught. And uh, <coughs> then I, I actually went to Burma to the Ubaikin Center, and then I went to Thailand to the monastery of Tanachan Mahaboa and Tanachan Singtong. Tanachan Mahaboa is reputed to be an Arahant. I wouldn't know whether he is or isn't. He also doesn't wish to teach women, but I was very lucky. I was uh, taken into the Kuti, is a, is a hut of monks and nuns, taken into the Kuti of a Chinese girl who I had once befriended in Sydney. And I found her back there, and she spoke perfect Thai. Uh, she was highly intelligent. She learned it very quickly. And uh, she translated everything for me, what that was going on, because nobody spoke a word of English. Uh, so she translated Tanachama Boa's talks to me. We stayed, stayed up all night, because it took you know, hours for her to translate the stuff. But at least I got a lot out of that. And she was also quite a, a good meditator, so I had help from her. And in Tanachan Singh Tong's monastery, I stayed for a range retreat, three months. And uh, it was interesting to learn about monastic life. What I learned there was that I wouldn't want to be a nun in Thailand, that's for sure. Um, they, uh, but the practice was nice because it's so quiet there in the forest that you can really do your practice. It's really nice. And you're, you know everything is food and a little hut and everything is there. You don't have to look after yourself get the food given so that was nice and then I went to Sri Lanka and I went to a meditation center in Sri Lanka Kandabodha and I realized that uh, the nuns had at least a little bit of uh, status in Sri Lanka although it's also very very poor status at least um, they are that on the ten precepts and they are <coughs> wearing nuns robes and uh, the people in Sri Lanka speak a lot of English because they had the British uh, as a colonial power, whereas Thailand didn't have that, so people don't speak so much English. And in fact, people, some people, the generation from about 45 years on up, English is their, for the educated class, their mother tongue in Sri Lanka. So that was easy for me. I, I couldn't learn Thai. It's a musical language, and I'm tone deaf. It has uh, five tones, and I couldn't learn it. I can't hear it. It's, uh, you have to be, a, I mean, tone deaf just doesn't work for Thai. <laughs> so, and, uh, and you had to know it in order to live there. You had, and besides, the nuns are just servants there. And so, <clears throat> in, in Sri Lanka was better, and um, so then I, and then I went back to Australia and I uh, opened up a monastery there. I 
bought the land and started the place and that English monk is in became the abbot, he's in charge of it. I don't have to be there. He's he's in charge. Yes. And uh, then after having done that, then I went to Sri Lanka and got ordained. Ordained as a nun. Yeah. Uh, well, the one who ordained me uh, is not your teacher, really, because, well, they do tell, call him your teacher, but this one, he was a very famous monk, and he wanted me to ordain me because I was one of the very few Western women to become a nun in Sri Lanka. I'm still one of the very few. <laughs> I mean, there aren't many. And uh, he's also dead now, but uh, I never, never used him as a teacher. But uh, my teacher is uh, uh, Venerable Jnana Rama. He's a 87-year-old monk in the forest, uh, in a forest monastery, actually a really jungle. It's really jungle. It's full of monkeys. And they are so naughty because nobody does anything to them. There's 500 acres of jungle. And the, if you don't watch out, the monkeys will take anything out of your hand that you're carrying along and they chatter and chatter and chatter and there's hundreds of them and it's uh, it's like being in a zoo in that place <laughs> and uh, so the uh, sometimes they make such a noise you can't meditate they're, they're really a nuisance but what can you do they have to also live so uh, he lives there he's lived there for the last 50 years and he's a um, renowned meditation master of which there are very few in Sri Lanka very, very few. Hardly any. <laughs> and um, he uh, um, he has been instrumental. Uh, he is the reason and the cause why I'm teaching the jhanas. I, of course, was able to do them <clears throat> when I uh, met him. But they are a no-no wherever you go. And uh, he... Uh, said that they need to be taught because they are a dying art are lost art already or dying art and uh, with his support and his uh, instructions also I was um, I felt confident to do it before that I kept my mouth shut I never mentioned them because I didn't study them I just did them <laughs> I had to. There are no teachers. And, uh, I mean, I knew enough about the teaching to know that this was the way to go. And I had been meditating long enough to be able to get concentrated. And the rest was my own work. But, um, I mean, just doing it. But I would never have taught them because uh, people just... Uh, they're not being taught anywhere. And they, uh, he teaches them, but only to those people who seem to have that inclination because as, uh, he gets a lot of young monks and they don't have that inclination. So um, he's, he's not, he not only encouraged me to do it, he demanded that I do it. He, demand, he said, first he said to me, I should teach. I said, but I am teaching. <laughs> he said, no. He said, that has to be taught. And uh, so it is because of that reason that I'm doing it, because he is 
in Sri Lanka he's uh, regarded as a um, authority on meditation and if anybody ever questions and everybody does question it uh, all they need to do is question him and uh, then you know they, they find out that it's that is the way he gave me also some pointers on how to teach it um, which was helpful so <coughs> end of story no <laughs> <laughs> it took years though, not not just fifteen minutes. <laughs> um yes, what shall I say? I don't know. It's very beautiful. It's very small, it's only two and a half acres. It's very hot. And uh absolutely and totally organized so that the meditation gets an order and I've had until now I'm now guessing but I think it's an educated guess about 40 different women there the opening ceremony was in September of 84 um, and out of those 40 I would say that many I can't give a number now many were able to get their meditation in a good shape. Most of them lost it again. Lost it again. At least the ones that are telling me. <laughs> well, lack of practice, uh, lack of diligent practice, and uh, too much outside uh, contact, too much worldly life. Then all these are not nuns. They can do what they like. They can come and go. But I'm not. In the beginning, I let everybody come and go as they please. It was like a motel. I can't handle that. I need my own peace and quiet if I live there. So now I have reduced it to three months of a year when people can come, stay, and go after the three months are over. If they want to come back and then practice on their own after they've been there for three months, they can come any time but not to be reliant on me anymore. If they are reliant on me, they have to come for those three months. And uh, because it was just uh, like a beehive, you know. Mm-hmm. One left, one came, one came, one left. It's just impossible. It can't work that way. So um, 